Piazza. Hello and welcome to In Piazza. I'm Jeannie Allen for another great episode about education, how we're transforming kids' lives, and things that everyone who cares about their country really should know about. I'm here today in Washington, D.C. It's February 10th. This is the second in a series um, that we're putting on to make sure that the people uh, throughout our great country, hopefully internationally, who are watching us, um, meet some of the nation's best education innovators who've been with me in Washington all week, uh, meeting with lawmakers, um, their own, other people, and uh, sharing why they do what they do, how they do what they do, and um, why it has a relevance, not just to kids going to school, but to work, to life, productivity, to our economy, um, to families and communities. I think they would all agree. Um, so I have Mike Long from Sale Future based in St. Pete, um, Wade Moore, uh, Urban Prep Academy in Wichita, Kansas, Chris Gullisey-Whirl from Oakmont Education in Ohio, and Dr. Steve Perry, Bridgeport, Connecticut, and runs School in the Bronx. And I'm going to start with you, Dr. Perry, because, um, Steve, you have been in the forefront of advocating for kids. Um, we have a little time to share with people what they need to know and get excited about. You're part of the Yas Prize community. All of you are finalists among thousands because you're so good at what you do. Why do you do what you do? What do people need to know? Well, first, thank you for having me today. And uh, really appreciate being part of this Yas family because it creates a conversation among different academic experiences that's necessary, not just for those service providers, but for the recipients. The more we learn about what it is that we do separately, the better we can serve our children and families. And I do what I do because it's essential to the very foundation of a country. It was Ben Franklin who said that an educated electorate is central to um, democracy. And if you cannot educate the poorest among us, then the country as a whole will perish. So when we have the opportunity to build academic experiences that compel young people to uncover what it is with inside, inside them, that makes them great, mm -hmm. then we are doing our job. At our schools, at Capital Prep schools, we don't call our teachers teachers, we call them illuminators. And the reason we call them illuminators is because the expectation is that they will light the way. And when you've, if you've ever taught a child and they go, oh, you see the light go on. So many of us are educating children from the darkness of their circumstances into the light of tomorrow. And that's what the folks here are doing. And you started out how? What was your upbringing? I was born on my mother's 16th birthday, third generation of public housing. Um, by the time I was 18, my father was in prison. And by the time I was 20, my younger brothers were in prison as well, in and out. And growing up in public housing, recognizing that there was a, a distinguisher that I thought was my zip code. I thought that I earned the poverty that I had. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I had the opportunity to go off to college through, not because of what my traditional school system did, but because of part-time out-of-school programs, which, pre, which predated the school choice experience, mm -hmm. upward bound programs, the war on poverty programs, those hoods in the woods programs that, that, that we still see now. Those were in many cases, the only way that many of us had any access to an academic experience other than the one that was prescribed by our neighborhood. It was then that I began to see that, wait a minute, I didn't do this to myself. Mm -mm. This isn't something I decided to do. I just thought I was a bad kid. I didn't think I was smart. I remember when I was in college one time, somebody called me an intellectual and I took offense to it. I was like, what the, what'd you just say? Because I didn't even know what they meant. I thought they were clowning me. I thought they were saying I was a punk. And among, among black people to say that, for many of us, it's to say, 
I thought they were saying I was acting white. And I was like, yo, what are you talking about? And I didn't realize, I didn't take it as a, I didn't internalize it as a compliment. So getting out, coming back to my hometown, running a homeless shelter and seeing many people I grew up with in the shelter was a trippy experience. Girls that I used to like when I was growing up, I came back and like, wow, you're whole homeless. Like you're, you don't have anywhere to live. It became clear that the distinguisher between the people who worked at the shelter and the people who were guests at the shelter was which path we took educationally. And being able to create an opportunity such as the one that I was given was what got me down this path. Amazing. Mike, I'm going to jump to you. You have a not dissimilar story. Yeah, right? I do. Different part of the world, different demographic. What happened? Where'd you come from? What do you do? Why do you do it? Yeah, similar to Steve, I, I can I can remember what it's like to feel like the circumstances that you're born into are what you earned and deserved. Uh, when I was five years old, my mom and I were in a, a really bad car accident that led to her having about 20 spinal surgeries. So early on in my life, it was just the two of us and I became a caretaker. And that made me very angry at the world. Uh, those spinal surgeries led to a, a prescription pill addiction that made me even angrier at the world because I saw the person I love most suffering. Uh, that anger led me to make a lot of really bad decisions. Like Steve's younger brothers, I spent the majority of my adolescence locked up in juvenile justice facilities all across the state. Kicked out of every school you could imagine for every reason you could imagine. And I was fortunate, uh, lucky, blessed, however you want to call it, uh, to be able to exit that system, many thanks to the privileges that I had, um, and go on to college and actually moved up here to Washington, D.C. to work as a, a legislative director, which I thought was this amazing job. I racked up all these awards as a, as a Truman Scholar, as you know, my career is just blossoming and advancing, and I felt completely empty inside. Wow. And I realized that my duty, uh, my purpose, the only thing that was going to bring me fulfillment in life was to do everything I could to create that pathway for people who grew up with similar um, similar experiences to I, that I had. And uh, it took me on a long journey for the past 10 years, and I'm really, really grateful that some of the kids that I've gotten to work with um, have been able to follow that path and build families on their own, and uh, it's given my life an enormous amount of meaning. And what do you give those students on a regular basis that you're serving at Sail Future? Everything. <laughs> well, I, I, I say that jokingly, but I'm serious. I, you know, our our agency is an umbrella organization that does everything from inpatient and outpatient mental health services to emergency housing and sheltering, long-term residential foster care work. Uh, we do international sailing expedition, rite of passage experiences, registered apprenticeship uh, job training programs with ultimate placement. And we also run a, a private high school that uh, is kind of the vehicle that many of those services are threaded and, and interwoven through. So when we started this work, we realized that just providing one service was not going to be enough uh, to give kids who had that level of despair and those many barriers uh, a true pathway forward. And every time that other systems failed to meet what their needs were, we stepped up and said, okay, I guess we'll get another license. I guess we'll get another uh, program off the ground and interwove those in a way similar to the Harlem Children's Zone, for example, and um, been been grateful to have many other examples and leaders to follow. Full service community, and you know, I I, I we kind of were calling this um, episode the Phoenix Effect in Education because you really both have demonstrated that like up from little 
right? And, and meeting people who are coming up from little, there really can be this incredible rise of this phoenix that, that, we, that we all know. Wade, you've got a similar and interesting background, right? So um, I remember uh, during, the, during the process of looking at all of the different applications for this YAS Prize, the Pulitzer Prize of Education, I was just curious, so I Googled you. And I saw a video of you talking to a local business club and you had slides and you were talking about your enslaved uh, relatives and heritage. And, and you said it, 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 it's not an excuse. So you started a school. So talk about where you come from and, and what you do, why you, why you do it. Yes, uh, again, thank you for allowing me to be here, being on here. Um, I grew up in rural Arkansas in Mississippi County, one of the poorest counties in Arkansas. And I am the son of my father's old age. My father was born in 1906. Let that sink in for a moment, 1906. And so my father was the one that took care of our community. He took care of all the senior citizens in our community. So I, I personally grew up around people born in the 1800s. Wow. Uh, my grandparents born in the 1800s. Uh, coming out of slavery. And I remember my father uh, taking the elderly people around, taking care of them. And first of the month, they would get their check and he would take them to cash their check. And Mr. Fred could not write his name. He would sign an X on his check. And they had to verify that it was him because he could not write his name. Uh, another gentleman my father took care of he did not know his real name. So he went by the name of General Lee. And, and seeing that as a child and saying that, that education, seeing how they were uneducated or did not have the opportunity to be formally educated. My father uh, had a, they called what my father had a great education, which was a sixth grade education back then, mm. which, which was great. And, and I, I'd ask my father, uh, how, how were you educated? How did you learn? He said, I educated myself. I would read the newspaper and I would practice writing. Mm. And so I grew up in, in that community. And then understanding that it would be education that would give me an opportunity out of that. I decided I, I did not want to uh, grow up. I would take all the experiences of it and I would grow up. So, uh, jump forward to high school. They considered me a pretty smart kid, but you know, I really didn't try as hard as I could have in it. And so going into my senior year, uh, you know, I'm waking up uh, from my educational uh, uh, sleep and I go to my college and career counselor and say, I want to go to college. And he looks me in the <laughs> face and he said, kids like you don't go to college. Oh. And it was that moment that uh, as, as a 16, 17 year old, uh, I could have been crushed and I could have just gave up, but I was determined to find another path. If, if I couldn't get into college, I'd find another path. So I joined the military. Um, I was 16 years old. They would not swear me in to my 17th birthday. So uh, my last night of my 16, of being 16, uh, they drive me over to Memphis, across the Mississippi River, and the Memphis, Tennessee. And on my 17th birthday, they swear me in to the U.S. Army. Mm. 
And I figured that would be my path uh, to a greater life. And so I graduate from high school, 17 years old, I'm in the Army. Uh, before I'm 21, I've been overseas, I've served our country, uh, I, I've had an honorable discharge, and I'm not even 21 years old yet. All right, so flash forward for everybody. So now you've got this incredible experience. You come home, you work in corporate yes. America, mm -hmm. you, you've got your education, by this point in time, yes. you start Urban Prep Academy. Do people think that was the craziest thing in the world? Absolutely, yes, yes. And, and, and having this passion. Like who are you to start a school, right? Right, who, who am I to start a school? I mean, you graduated from high school, you, you didn't go to college, uh, but you, you've managed to have some level of success. But seeing children that were uh, left behind, kids that were falling through the cracks, mm -hmm. families that were crying out, uh, I decided to start the Urban Prep Academy for low-income and working-class families to give those children an opportunity to get caught up in their educational journey and to move forward. And so we started the Urban Prep Academy kindergarten through fifth grade with eight students. And today we have over 120 students. Frisco, Lissiboro, Ohio. Yes. We, heard, we learned when we were in Miami, you actually grew up. Uh, well, I'm from Northeast Ohio, but my family was in Miami was as in well. Miami. Yeah, and, and and you are you help run a fantastic uh, dropout prevention recovery and yes. Yeah, so um, I'm the vice president for Oakmont Education, and we operate 16 not-for-profit dropout recovery schools. But we focus on career um, technical yeah. education, the trades, skilled trades, and placement. And so our students are not your typical student. Um, but I don't really find typical to be all that in impressive um, anyways. but Because, because why? Our, our average student is over 18 years old, um, highly like has had many traumas, not of their own doing and some of their own doing, um, which most of us on this here are familiar with. <laughs> yeah, and, and wait a minute, so, so go back. Let's, yes. get, your, let's get your story. Oh, okay. Because it's not everybody that can actually... And I'm going to say this, and it's going to sound just really, really like, like, deal with those kids. Like, we have a hard enough time dealing with our own kids. You deal with kids that are coming from all these different, you know, it's, challenges, and we know that that challenge. doesn't work in traditional education. So, how are you able to relate to them? Yes. So, we work with dropouts, and and I I could say I'm a dropout, but I call myself a takeout because I was taken out of my home by escorts that were hired because I was a really bad kid, and. Um, I was kicked out of schools like Mike. Um, I had a, some traumatic things that happened to me in my adolescence, and I chose to deal with those in a way that some of our students chose to deal with those in a rage. And I, like I tell people, our kids are going to make you see them or hear them one way or another. And I roared like the lion until people turned around and saw me. But by the time they saw me, uh, it was kind of like almost too late for, for you know, I was not going to to change. And mm -hmm. so they took me and went to two wilderness programs in the 90s and then they kept trying to break me. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to fit in like do you know those shapes that our kids play with mm -hmm. when they're little they the star goes in the star that they were like I was this this star and they were trying to jam me through the circle and I was like I can't fit in the circle. I'm not going to dull the edges. And went to, ended up going to a therapeutic boarding school court ordered um, it was shut down subsequently later on for, for child abuse. Um, and when I left that facility, I was 
19 years old, but my parents had raised my age of majority. And the owner looked at me and he was like, right before he put me on a Greyhound bus, and he was like, you'll never be anybody. You will never do anything because you won't listen. And I won't say exactly what I said, but I, I did get on that bus. And I remember thinking, I don't want this to happen to other kids. Mm -hmm. And series of untraditional ways of going through my own college experience, eventually getting a master's from Northwestern, sent him a copy with a thank you <laughs> note. Um, wish I could send him the bill too. But uh, yeah, so when I had the opportunity to work with John, our CEO, to, to bring Oakmont to fruition, it's been like a dream realized mm. because people see me and they think, I don't, I'm not going to get emotional, but people see me and they think, this woman has had it so easy. Oh, yeah. Um, this track has yeah. to have, like, and it's been so hard. Yeah. And to share that with my students, that you will find your way. We don't need to find their way. We just need to, like, make it safe for them to find their way. Mm -hmm. We keep trying to lead kids down these paths that haven't worked for so long. We aren't listening to them. Like, we just aren't listening. And so we should just take a, take a step back and realize that those type of kids are some of the most powerful voices we have because they've been self-preserving and hustling, and they really know what they want. You know, we talked a lot about, thank you, Chris, we talked a lot about student agency with Corey and Brian um, and Kanisha in the other podcasts we did. Um, and I think about like looking at my grandkids who are staying with us right now, and they're so different. They're little and they're so different, right? Oh, and yeah. and and kids, you know, there's that book, The Greatest Generation, that um, that was written years ago about the World War II generation and how they basically created the country we're sitting in, the, the financial systems. They took us out of the war. They didn't have anything, right? They we dropped them. A lot of them, we just dropped them into after war with all their trauma and they figured this out on their own. And you're right. We just assume sending students into these traditional places and then you're the troublemaker, you know, and then go down the hall and why don't you shut up and put this away and, and whatever. And it's their problem, not ours. So it's the adults. It's all the right? adults. And you always talk about the adults and I don't think people hear what you and others are saying when we talk about adults. They're like, oh, you're all those people who think something else has to happen. But we have our bias as adults. Yeah, so one of the things to keep in mind is that in, when having a conversation around education is the history of education in America. Believe it or not, generations who came before us knew that there needed to be different academic experiences, and they tried in not so effective ways to create them. Some of the therapeutic settings were punitive. I mean, they were essentially punitive. Many of the, um, what I refer to as the hoods in the woods programs, they were punitive. Anything that wasn't, anyone who couldn't go to the neighborhood school and do the neighborhood things was penalized. Mm -hmm. And so every other academic option was a penalty. And as countries do sometimes, we overcorrected and we then tried to squish all those services back into the neighborhood schools. And by squishing them, we really just diminished them to the, to the point that they really didn't exist. The mental health services didn't really exist. 
the academics challenges and opportunities didn't really exist. It couldn't just be codified in a in a series of courses, AP or traditional, like they couldn't be that. And then we tried to cover the tracks of racism by many of us who had that same conversation with people of color and or poor people who had those same conversations. We were told at some point, college is not for you. Mm -hmm. So we tried to cover those tracks by creating, it didn't work. And so to a degree, there is a reason to be suspicious of choice if, because it could also be a, 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 a ruse for something bad. I get that. I truly understand. It's, it's, it's much like the uh, Tuskegee experiment and, mm. and um, African-Americans, when we hear about uh, uh, vaccinations, we're like, hey, 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 mm. hey, hey. But there's more to the story. It's not that binary where just because something bad happened in the past that anything that looks like it's going to be bad in the future, because what we know now is in the present day, we know too much about the way children learn to think that any school is best for all kids. Anyone who has more than one child knows in a very real way, you've looked at both of them and thought, damn. Exactly. Y'all are from the same, like, <laughs> same house. How'd that happen? That's, yeah. This is not. And, 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 and we talk about birth order, and we talk about gender, and we talk about sex. We talk about all these other things. But here's the thing. Kids are different. Yeah. People are different. Mm -hmm. And what we have to begin to accept is that the politics of the teachers' union, which shifts the entire conversation around education to an employment conversation, is what's destroying the work that anyone who's well-intended yeah, is doing. Yeah. We need to have the conversation about what we know about teaching and learning, what we know about different levels of development, what we know about certain communities, not as a punishment, not being punitive, but as a form of learning. And, and I think that the interesting thing is because we mentioned this thing called teachers unions, and for people in the know, they kind of get it. And people out of the know, they think they understand it. But really what you're just saying is there's an organized group of people who make a lot of rules, right? They do more than that. Right, right. They look so out for their own interests. They look out for they, their own interests. They protect people who are, in many cases, hurting children in school. And like, they're political. Literally. Very, right? They're, they're political, political. And they spend money to keep some of these things that you guys run from being in existence. Right? But so the biggest thing they do is shift the conversation from parents and educators with compelling backgrounds I taught my grandfather in the fourth grade how to write his name because he was not literate. The same story, he was born in yes. 1918. Wow. The same story, right? I took care of family members who were struggling with substance abuse. Same story, same story. My friends were in those Hoods in the Woods programs, but because we didn't have, we didn't have the resources yeah. to do so, we were in a poorer version of it. That right, was but, called Outward Bound. But right. they were all the same things. Yeah, but this, but here's the thing. And, and Mike, help us break this down, too. It's a bunch of systems and a bunch of bureaucracies. We've talked about this, about you know, funding that you don't get, the state gets for similar kids. Mm -hmm. Right? It's systems. So unions have a whole bunch of stuff happening. But there's also just, like, a lot of different people telling everyone what to do. Right. I, I think what every single one of us, Steve, Chris, Wade, we all have in common is when we see a student that's struggling, we don't make the assumption that the reason that student is struggling is their fault. We see a student who can't read. We see a student who isn't doing math on grade level. We see a student who is struggling behaviorally. And then we hold up a mirror. And we look at ourselves and we say, what are we doing wrong that is causing this? 
And that, if everyone had that philosophy, if everyone had that mindset, teachers unions, districts, governors, politicians, donors and philanthropists like Jeff and Janine Yas, if everyone had that mindset that it is our responsibility to design the system and the educational experience that will allow this child to thrive, we, we would have systems where children thrive. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we manifest that mentality across the country? Right. And, and we do have these institutions. It's just so, so right. And that actually should be you know, ingrained. That probably should be in the bag that every parent gets when they have the child. You know, they get the diaper. They get the, like, the here's your advice, the formula. Yeah. There should be in there. Like, yeah. if it, something happens, look in the mirror. Look <laughs> Right? But, but these institutions that we know from history, right? You were in the military. Associations are, are, na- are nature's association. You know, Tocqueville wrote about the country... We by nature, that makes us uniquely American. We associate. So all of these organizations came together to associate, thinking they had a bond together. Teachers, administrators, school boards, parents come together. They have associations. But the problem is when they get really big and really powerful, power begets power. Absolutely. So you're in what I think is, uh, is like such a beautiful place. It's away from all this politics, but it happens in Kansas too. But from your perspective... What do you see? Like, do you see these things happening with your private school? Do you see it happening in Kansas? When you look back at your at your at your upbringing, were these things there? Yes, a, a lot of these things, and like they say, adults. It's, it's always the grown-ups. Uh, kids want to learn. Kids want to be successful. Uh, each of us, uh, we were always asked, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" a doctor, lawyer, police, uh, uh, president of the United States. And what got me was when I started asking children in this generation, what do you want to be when you grow up? And some say, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. The inability to stop dreaming or not to dream or someone teaching them not to dream. Um, so having to change their minds that no matter where you're coming from, you can be somebody. And to uh, remove the adults that are making decisions, but they're not making decisions for children, they're making decisions for themselves. I've been to so many uh, educational hearings in Kansas, uh, appropriations committees, education committees, uh, and, and, and the majority of the conversation is centered around what's in it for the adults rather than what's best even, even for in the Kansas. children. I was, even in I Kansas. I just keep thinking Wizard of Oz. I'm, I'm so disappointed. Well, the kids yeah. are collateral. The, yeah. the kids are just a shield. They're not, they're, they're not really part of the conversation. And, and Jeannie, you, you bring up something that I think is super important. As Mike is experiencing, we have a mechanism to fund children, mm-hmm. not systems. We do. But what happens, and, and, and I want people to understand what, what that means. It sounds like a slogan, but very specifically, when you get the GI Bill, you go to college, wherever you go to college, that college, whether it's a state college, whether it's a private college, whether it's a religious college, whether it's a for-profit and not-for-profit, none of those things matter. The only thing that matters is you served, you get the GI Bill, and that money goes exactly to that place. Absolutely. Period. When you have a medical condition, Medicare, Medicaid, 
When you have, uh, when you need housing, Section Eight. When you have food, TANF. Yeah. When you have, when you have pre-K. Almost every pre-K dollar right. goes to a private yeah. provider. Mm -hmm. In most cases, religious churches, yeah. mosques, synagogues are providing pre-K. So every other part of the economy easily and effectively uses vouchers to pay for services to the poorest among us, and in many cases, middle-class people, except for K-12. K-12, no. K-12, no in most states because what the teachers' union knows is that when you give parents the opportunity to choose what's best for their child, they're not going to choose a school at the end of their block. They're going to choose a school that right. they believe right. best meets their children's needs, their learning and, and their family values, which by and large is not the school at right. the end of and their so, block. And so one of the things that everybody has to remember is they're doing that for lots of reasons, which we can go into lots of other times, but, but they really do also believe, and we don't say this enough, that they know better. They do. Right? And so... Chris, you're spending time in advocacy. You argue with people. You testify. You've been where all these guys have been. Um, you're active on social media. You have to follow her on Twitter. Um, and seriously, they think they know better. They do. And um, so tell us about that. What do we need to know? Yeah, so my... I think that the, not just the adults, but like I'll, I'm going to talk about teachers' union. I'm not yeah. picking on the teachers' union, yeah. but I am picking on the teachers' union. I am. So the, the thing about me is I am an electrician's daughter. I'm very proud of my father, and, and I'm a first-generation American, but I'm, I'm very proud of the – I grew up in a labor union. I grew up riding in a factory with my dad when I was a little girl. He'd ride me all around in his scooter, and it was, like, incredible. Um, my dad could have gotten crushed by a machine every day. He was inside machines, and he came home filthy, and I remember the smell – and I love it. Like, if I smell auto plant, I'm like, mm, dad. And the, I, I see people that are in those labor unions, and I'm like, that's, that's so incredible, and I, I understand that. But a teacher, why are we so confused that the teachers union protects teachers and represents them? Like, we keep acting, like, stunned. Like, oh, my gosh, they're not looking out for kids? It's called the teachers union, and they function as they're supposed to. And the origins of yeah, how they got... job. And the origins of how they came about... They'd never want to talk about. I highly recommend a book called The Strike That Changed New York about the origins of the teachers' union. You really want to know what they're about. That book tells you, and they don't want you to read that. Um, so, you know, I get a lot of slack from people because they don't understand why I would ever be against the teachers' union because they, they've done such a good job PRing themselves mm -hmm. into caring for kids. Mm -hmm. But I have a friend in New York who said something very thoughtful. He said, do you expect the auto workers union to represent the interests of drivers? And mm -hmm. that took me and I thought, no, yeah. I never, I never have. So what we need to do is really just take the people that like everyone I know until I talk to them is like, the teachers union is great. And why would I support choice? And then you start talking to them. They're like, well, I didn't know that was going on. I, I didn't understand that. Or they talk about all the money that goes into choice. And I was like, do you want to talk about the salaries? Just maybe at the at the teachers' union level, at the state, you want to talk about why are we, it's so one-sided and it's so focused on adults. Well, That's the other thing. So yeah. Kids are adults. dying. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday on the Hill, and just no before we close, we talked about this talking. And again, for those listening um, or watching this <coughs> at the Yas Prize YouTube channel, who are sponsors from Piazza, we've been on the Hill talking to people. I've been doing this a really long time, more than three decades. I had an aha moment yesterday. 
Yeah. One of you were talking, as I was watching the staffers talk, and maybe they'll be watching this at some point in time, and you all were talking about money, and you know we were pushing like, this is what we need, we need more flexibility, we're talking about money, and somebody said, you, I think you said it, Steve, we're the only ones up, like, we're here, but you see the unions all the time. And we do, and I know that, and when you said it again, I had this visual, like I had this visual of, 535 members of Congress, and on a daily basis, there is someone representing state and national education interests. All day. Uh, on day. Capitol Hill. By the way, in states, they're across the street in Annapolis, because when I ran for office, I had to walk by them every single day, and they booted me. And right there, every, every time I'd go to state Capitol, there's two things that are real. They're right near the Capitol. Chinese mm -hmm. restaurant and teachers unions. And you do well. it right here, right here yeah. in D.C. Look, look. At, I mean, yeah. look at the yeah. size of the facilities yeah. that yeah. these folks have. The most, it's beautiful. Huge. It's beautiful. <laughs> They're like, enormous. Wow. And so you were saying that. I was like, maybe that's the visual we have to show people. Right? And so you're up there, and you got and like you guys are like looking at your watches, your phones, because you actually have to get back to the schools that to you run, the parents you well, talk to. We can't to. compete. And that's a really good right? point. Right? So, so this is one of the problems that we have politically. We have this problem politically. All of us are itching to see what our You're not phone. coming back for a while unless we get you back there. Uh, and by that time, it doesn't matter because they forgot you. That's right. Because right. Miss So-and-so is standing outside their room and Constant. they're taking them to lunch. Literally, literally, literally. Like, we're sitting there the entire time, like, looking at our phones, looking at our phones, like, oh, what's going on? What's going on at work? They, their only job is it's to come to the hill, to hill and lie about what's happening back in the district. Yeah. And I've watched many a legislator, local and national, they hear them and they think, I don't think that that's true, but they don't have the other side. They right. don't have the family's voices. Right. They don't have the children's voices. And they don't have the yeah. steady drumbeat of it. When they talk to us, many times I've had politicians both on the left and the right say, you know, that's what I thought was happening. And I didn't want to say something because they so weaponized my statements that if I say something as a white legislator, they're going to say, you're saying that because you're racist. Or if I say something as a male legislator, they're going to say, you're saying that because you're sexist, because you're sexist. They, yeah. they tried to call yeah. me sexist against teachers because they said the teachers... Like, they and just, you're not really black. That's, no. Right? Well, That's the right. other one I hear well, all the time. I don't know if they say that out loud, but they, <laughs> you know? they could try. Oh, but the point, is, but the point is this. Yep. that He doesn't represent black interests. Don't bring well, him here. Yeah, we, well, I know they yeah, say that. Yeah. But if someone said that, they'd be lying. But in any case, what of I'm course. saying is that we understand that just by day-to-day, minutes on task, the teachers union exists to come up to state capitals, to, 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 the, uh, to, to national capital, and just spew their venom all day. And so even the most well-thought-out legislators start to think, I don't know if I want this smoke. I don't know if I want to deal with this. And because we, too often, don't effectively and consistently present our point, they're the only ones who rule the day. And you said a few times last, yesterday... To, to legislators, and I thought this was really important, Jeannie. You said, it's fine if you listen to the other side, but call us too. Just just call us. Yeah. Yeah, just ask. It's a really great point. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and we, we can do great advocacy work on the local level. And that's how we got uh, ed choice, uh, educational choice in Kansas, is just what you were saying. I took the time, made the sacrifice. I lived at the Capitol. Yes. They saw me day and night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, until somebody gave in. Uh, I don't know. We were talking about yeah. somebody the other day. That was yeah. Jerry. Yeah. Like yeah. We were, yeah. Yeah. They told us yeah. we had a law that we wrote to make it to, 
for master carpenters or masters of their craft to be mm. able to teach that specific craft, they were like, you know what? We want you to go back to college and learn the pedagogy of teaching. And we were like, these are 55-year-old, like, retired master. They're trained. So we wrote a law, and we were trying to do it every day at the Capitol. And mm -hmm. finally, they sat us around this, and they were like, if you guys just don't come back, we won't do this. If you yes. just leave and yes. don't come back. It's the persistence. And it worked. It's um, the because it's really, but yeah. we don't have the, yeah. the bandwidth. Right. The, the no. money or the man, no. like the manpower. And I've been mm -hmm. to a lot of your uh, schools, and we'll go to the rest of them, and I see how you are, and you're there, and you're there. And I think that's something that everyone watching, listening, will do this again. We'll have more conversations like this because we have to educate people. If every, if everyone who was had the power of media had conversations like this, we could truly change the world. So Oprah, you're not in business anymore, but I'm coming for you. We're gonna make sure that we put on a show like this, um, introduce you people to more innovators. I can't thank you enough. Mike Long, Wade Moore, Chris Gillespie-Worrell, so and Steve thank Perry you. for joining me in thank Piazza, you. for joining our guests. And um, thank you so much for joining us, for watching. Please subscribe to In Piazza, wherever you get your podcasts. Check out uh, the Yas Prize on YouTube and at Yas Prize on Twitter to follow along and at In Piazza on Twitter. I'm Jeannie Allen. Ci vediamo.